Based in Memphis, Tennessee, blues musician Andy Cohen plays mostly southeastern music that he found on old 78 RPM records. Andy's performances include blues, gospel, country dance music, fiddle tunes, ballads, classic rags, country songs, and boogies. If there's one thing Andy loves as much as playing blues, that would be talking about the blues. I lived in Asheville, North Carolina in the mid-1970s. And I met a man there. His name was Walt Phelps. And he could play a little bit of guitar. And I asked him where he was from. And he said, I'm from Lawrence, South Carolina. And he was born in the same year as Davis. He was, he was in his close to 80 when I met him. So I said, when you were a kid, did you know a blind kid that could pick his ass off? And he said, yeah, you're talking about Gary Davis. I knew him, and I knew his brother, Buddy Pinson. I knew them both. And then he proceeded to take my guitar and he played Candyman just exactly like Reverend Davis taught me. Everybody, yet another Plutopia News Network podcast. I'm John Lebkowski, and my partner over there is Scoop Sweeney. And uh, our contributing editor and uh, uh, resident genius is Wendy Grossman. And our guest today is Andy Cohen. Hey, Andy. Pleased how you to doing? Meet you. And Andy, to all your fans and everything. Andy's a blues musician, and uh, he lives in. You live in Memphis, Tennessee, right? Yeah. And uh, and what I saw in your bio is that you play mostly southeastern music that was on seventy-eight RPM records, including. And that's blues, gospel, country dance music, fiddle tunes, monologues, ballads, classic rags, ditties, country songs, and boogies. Yep. I wow. Sounds great to me. Yeah. So can Wendy. I cannot read... play any of those things. <laughs> well, you probably could play some of those. Yeah. I can, can play, I can play a certain kind of Anglo-American uh traditional and contemporary she can she can claw hammer jigs <laughs> that's not something everything everybody can do yeah but i don't want to, me how to do <laughs> I, Wendy, haven't I, wanna, I haven't practiced that up <laughs> i'm going to introduce you as lead claw hammer from now on yep she can do that well i want to i want to ask a question before we go any further uh that's about categories so we we know there's folk music and people talk about the blues and there's also country blues and how do those things differ country blues is a form of folk music which is we call we don't call it folk music or traditional music anymore now we call it source music music that comes from any community is as the source 
okay this is something that these folks put together that they're proud of that they have a number of practitioners of and they carry this off through time so we call this source music on my wall I have a, a chart it's a poster of all of the known fiddle and banjo players from the Galax area that straddles West Virginia and uh, North Carolina and, and Virginia and there's a batch of them there's there's from 1750 to the year 2000 there's about 75 different fiddle and banjo players with their lifelines all tagged out in lines one above the other from 1750. So that's what I call a tradition that's not really arguable. You know, there's the evidence, there's the receipts right there. And you know that it wasn't just one fiddler learning a bunch of tunes and then, you know, the next fiddler comes up and starts to learn about another bunch of tunes. These are people interacting and they're acting during celebratory periods and somber periods sometimes. Their, their, their musical efforts generate all kinds of activity from babysitting and making food and going places and bundling the kids up and having a good time and then going home or maybe staying over and going home the next morning for 250 years. That, That's that, so that, that begins to extend the notion of what a musical tradition is outward from just the music. Because the music gets recorded and we buy little pieces of it we sell little pieces of it as souvenirs for, at our gigs. Um, what actually happened at the gig more or less gets lost. That's the anthropology behind all of this folk music. That's the, the sociology, the social setting, the trouble that people go to, to be good to one another and their neighbor. I guess we wouldn't know a lot about some of this music if it hadn't been for Lomax going out and making all those recordings Lomax when he did. There were lots of them, and there still are. Wendy and I do that both. Well, you more you more than me. Um, I tend to I tend to learn most of the songs I know from other folkies. I learned most of my songs from other folkies, but the ones that I learned from individuals that I met. Uh, are the ones that I really cherish. For instance, um, you may or may not who, know who Reverend Gary Davis is or was. You do know who he was. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask about him, actually. Definitely. I, I, I will do that. Reverend Davis was a blind guitar player who was, who could, you'll pardon my language, he could pick his ass off. Um, there wasn't anybody that could come close and many of today's rockers and immediately yesterday's rockers took lessons from him. You know, from people like the Grateful Dead and Ry Cooter and 
and um, David Bromberg and a lot, all kind of people you know took lessons from Reverend Davis because he was in his mind there was the material of a school of music and he passed it on unsparingly to anybody that would listen so if you knew a little bit when you went to him he made it all made sense in a concrete way he was a great teacher and as well as being a great performer he was born in a little place called um, uh, Lawrence South Carolina and I lived in Asheville, North Carolina in the 19, mid-1970s. And I met a man there. His name was Walt Phelps. And he could play a little bit of guitar. And I asked him where he was from. And he said, I'm from Lawrence, South Carolina. And he was born in the same year as Davis. He was, he was in his close to 80 when I met him. So I said, when you were a kid, did you know a blind kid that could pick his ass off? And he said, yeah, you're talking about Gary Davis. I knew him, and I knew his brother, Buddy Pinson. I knew them both. And then he proceeded to take my guitar, and he played Candyman just exactly like Reverend Davis taught me. How did you get up to Asheville? Zine told me he told he knew Gary Davis. He's what he said was I knew him twice. I knew him from down home and I knew him in Asheville. And I didn't even know that Reverend Davis had been in Asheville. He came to Asheville after he he was at blind school in Spartanburg, South Carolina, for one semester. They taught him to read Braille music and Braille English and they taught him to stuff mattresses and they gave him the worst food in the world that's why he left and um, see, in those days the blind schools were segregated in the South this is something that not everybody knows um, so if the blind kids didn't get much in the first place the, the blind kids would with dark skins got even less so he left the blind school and he went to Asheville and he started playing spirituals in uh, uh, what's that park uh, in the in in the Pack Square he started playing square spirituals in Pack Square and that's where uh, old Walt when he was a younger man ran into him so I asked Walt how come he was up in Asheville. He said, well, I was the water boy on the Bowcatcher Tunnel. That's 300 yards of solid rock that was taken out of Bowcatcher Mountain way back. Um, I don't know exactly when, but if Walt was the water boy, 
That had been some time ago, because Walt died in the early 80s. Um, uh, he said he said his job was to take water to the men as they work, hacking the rock piece by piece, 300 yards through the mountain where the people drive through today, so that the people that worked downtown didn't have to take their horses and buggies up over the whole of Bowcatcher Mountain. They could just go through it instead to get to to where they lived. And um, he said he'd take water to the men all day, but come nightfall and they stopped work, they'd go to skinning them dice and drinking that scrap iron. They wouldn't want to get up the next morning. His job, he had to get them up. He said, I'd walk through the barracks where the labor lay asleep. And I'd sing my little shack roster song and get the man up for the day's work. You've been up all night, highballing round. Daylight come and you want to lay down. Raise up, bit of raise up. If he's aiming to make all day, raise up. Well, I hate to call you, but I have it to do. Captain called me and I have to call you. Raise up. Better raise up if you're saving to make all day. Raise up. Well, I had a little gal and she didn't want to dance. I put her on the bed, Lord, I made her dance. I hugged her and I kissed her and I made her three spins. Come on, Mama, do the same thing again. Raise up. Better raise up if you're saving to make all day. Raise up. They do that all day long. When I met Walt, he was doing yard work, but before that, he had been in some medicine shows. And uh, he had been, uh, he also mainly labored his life away. Uh, he was old when I met him and hadn't done all that much work, but he was living in a shack on the dirt side of Eagle Street. And that's um, that's the other side of, of um, uh, forgetting the name of the street. It's a while since you were in Asheville, isn't it, though? It's a while since you were in Asheville. It's been a while, yeah, about like 30 years. I go there every once in a while just to visit. Sometimes I see people I know, sometimes I don't. Um, I met a number of players. I was intrigued by Asheville because one of its biggest exports is old-time music, banjo and fiddle music. And there wasn't much in the way of blues. I had to go looking for it. What really surprised me is I was at a uh, I was at a computer industry thing, and they'd invited a bunch of people from the entertainment industry. They were trying to look cool, you know. And I ended up seated at lunch next to Robert Moog, you know, the synthesizer Robert guy. Muggy. Yeah. Yeah, he was making synthesizers in Asheville. What? <laughs> he had a workshop in Asheville, and I. I <laughs> 
sometime later, I arranged an interview with him, and I went down to see his workshop. Uh, M U G G E. M O O G. Oh, 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 Moog. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Different yeah, guy. Robert Moog. No, Robert Muggy. Robert Muggy is a blues writer. Uh, Robert Moog is the the the, the guy. of the Moog Ball Joint Company. Well, but he also made synthesizers and theremins. Well, which didn't get used a lot in blues tunes, as far as I recall. Well, that, that it, it's true. It's true. Um, but his his folks, the people who started the Moog Ball Joint, people made them like uh, he he was basically a trust fund kid. He had no worries. Well, that may explain why he was so cranky. Um, <laughs> it might be. <laughs> he was not having a good day the day I, the day I saw him. Um, but what John asked you was the difference between country blues, country music, and folk music. I think if I have I got that right, John. Was that your original no. question? Well, okay. Country blues yeah, is folk music. Blues is a genre of music that arises out of country blues, first into vaudeville, and then gets shot through the length and breadth of American music. It just kind of overtakes it in all forms. There's any number of blues-derived forms. What we call blues is a long-term structure, but let's just take the labels away. I don't even like the label anymore. There is black music that differs, differential, all over the United States, but particularly in the South, where there are lots of isolated communities, where there is little travel between them for a long time. People are left at their own devices to make their own entertainments. David Holt, who founded the Warren Wilson Archive, over there at Warren Wilson College, the Appalachian Archive. He found a woman named Susie. He had a picture of her. She was 125 years old at the time he took her picture. And Susie played the washboard because when in her little hamlet of seven or eight people they wanted to have a dance, the washboard was the only instrument in town. So she would take that washboard and she wouldn't scratch it with her knuckles or go at it with thimbles. She would just tap it and people would dance. And that's, that's a tradition too. You know, that's, it's, not just the, it's not just the 12 bar convention that jazz, professional jazz musicians use so that if somebody says blues in B flat, they can all do it. Blues is the whole panoply of African-American music with inputs from all over. You know, um, a one thing that's not commonly known is that most of our old time music our climax old-time music that we associate with white fiddlers was just as much played by black fiddlers, possibly more. In the big cities between 1850 and 1900, 
till they start putting up those damn statues. That was something that was something that I learned during the pandemic um, because there were all these Zoom gatherings. There was a there's a group called the Traditional Song Forum who do these lectures. Yeah. And there were a bunch of there were a bunch of papers on on sort of the black presence in even you know, things that you really associate with white people, you know, sea shanties and, and other areas, you know, and they were, it was fascinating. That, yeah. But in, black dance instructors, black fiddle players, black banjo players were the main players for they were the people who taught white folks how to do square dancing. You know, the. the uh, there's a great book by Phil Jameson called Jigs, Hoedowns, and Reels, or Jigs, Reels, and Hoedowns, which is about the wispy, it, it pulls together 20 years of research into the wispy little traces of black fiddlers that show up in the archives in the slave narratives and in the papers and runaway slaves and stuff like that. If there was... Um, so what we call old-time music, a lot of it largely derives from African-American music directly. And um, that's kind of why I gravitate to it. I, I, wa I want to go to the source you know, we are all reaching for something that's bigger than us, and I'm reaching for something that's bigger than us. I'm, I'm reaching for the source of the music that I grew up to love, and in all of its creakiness and in all of its scratchiness. Stuff off the 78s. Pat Conti says, those scratches, they're a screen. They're an individual individual. Uh, the, an invisible screen to keep you from going through the 78 into that time. They don't want you back there. They, they're happy by themselves. I'm happy to hear you say that because I'm a long-term fan of vinyl and uh, the old 78s. And I have many of them. And I have I, I irritate my friends by playing. It's like, that's all scratchy. It's like, Yes, but it's real, and you can't find that anywhere. And right. my first music I ever heard was Zydeco and Creole music because I was born in Louisiana. And yeah. that's the first thing I heard, and that's the first time I heard, heard some or saw someone play the washboard. You talked about the washboard in uh -huh. Zydeco. That's, a, you know, that's the instrument that backs up everybody else. Yeah. When I was, when I was 16 years old, 18 years old actually, just about to graduate high school, my brother took me to the Brandeis Folk Festival, which was all acts from folklore productions. They were all represented by folklore productions. And I found out later that folklore productions actually gave the faculty senate which put it on the money to put it on in other words they gave them the money to hire their own players so i arrived there and i got there early so i wanted to sit up front because i wanted to see reverend davis i wanted to see how we played because i was just learning to play then 
And I was getting into Big Bill Brunsey, and I was getting into some of the better pickers, Merle Travis and Elizabeth Cotton, you know, all of the people who who came out early. I liked that kind of picking because it sounded like the kind of piano that I liked and the kind of Dixieland music that I liked. It's um, uh, what we call Piedmont blues is very jazzy. You listen to Blind Blake or Johnny St. Sir, basically you're listening to early jazz. And that was what I liked at the time. This is 1960. And I got to sit, I got to see the Jim Question Jug Band opened because they were the youngsters. This was the first time Bill Keith played with them. He was just chonking court. And then the New Lost City Ramblers came out and they played for a little while and then they brought Roscoe Holcomb out. And then when he was done, um, when he was done, uh, they brought the Georgia Sea Island singers out with Bessie Jones. Now they do a kind of singing called, we call it shouting. It's actually a religious practice, a shaud, that their ancestors brought over. And they about tore it up. By this time, you got 750 Jewish kids, they're all wearing yarmulkes, jumping up and down, and then they brought out Reverend Gary Navis. And this is the middle of the civil rights movement. And I suspect I've run into a number of people who went to that same concert that same night. And they were all just as impressed as I was. All of a sudden, everything they were hearing about the same about the civil rights movement and everything they were learning about folk music came together and made sense in a palpable way. And that has directed my life ever since. of the city where my love has gone on before I'm gonna sit down on the banks of the river and I won't be back no more I'm gonna tell the good Lord just how you treat me I get to
That's the first thing I ever heard Reverend Davis do. I still can't play it right. <laughs> well, but could he play it right? Maybe by the time I finish up, I'll get it right. So one of the reasons that we thought of inviting you was that you're starting a CD label. The stories of what? You're starting a CD, a label, re releasing oh, CDs. A label. Let me tell you about my label. It's actually a satellite label to Earwig. My does all my publishing, and Al does all my designing. The great, great. It's a great team. It's a great team. The fellow named Jim Godsey's great engineer. He was trained here. Jim Godsey was trained here in Memphis. He, he learned his trade here where the blues is. This is my label. Now, I got my label the old-fashioned way. I inherited it. Um, my wife was Larkin Bryant. She died about two and a half years ago. Um, she started River Lark back in 1984 to, so that she would have a vehicle for publishing her dulcimer book, Larkin's dulcimer book. It sold about close to 150,000 copies since 1984. I still, it's still in print. I'm still selling it. She could have sold out to Mel Bay a long time ago, but she <laughs> determined to keep it in her own hands. Good for her. And after she died, I'm keeping it going. I'm publishing other things too. Um, and I took some of the money that I inherited and I put it in Rivalart. And I started recording friends of mine that hadn't recorded for a long time or had never had. Because these are my choices, right? I get to be... <laughs> I, I, get to, I get to be the one to say, hey, you're the one I want. So I found any number of people uh, that I've known, some of them for 50 years, like Wendy. More than 50 years. More than half a century, we've known each other. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what year we met, but I graduated from college in seventy-five. So it's probably just about fifty. Years. Seventy-one, nineteen seventy-one. I would won't. have been a freshman then, so probably not. Yeah, yeah probably. I think, no, I think it was for various reasons. I think it was later than that, but it was somewhere wonder, somewhere seventy-three to seventy-five. Let's put it that way. Um, the. The folks on, back in those days, a lot of campuses had folk song clubs. I went to the University of Illinois. Archie Green was the adult in charge. The adult in charge in Ithaca was Peter Yarrow. Uh, he started the club as an Elizabethan madrigal singer at that point. I'm not sure he started it. He was definitely a, he was definitely president sometime in the fifties. He was yeah. not, but he was not the the the. The club always had uh, a professor who was nominally in charge, and he was not that person. Okay. So we wouldn't have thought of him as the adult in charge. But then Bill Bill Steele spent a lot of time being the adult sort of in charge. Right. And um, But that club brought together people like Peter Hoover and, and Howie Burson and Wendy and... Who was it? Captain Overkill. Ted, what's his name? 
There was uh, t oh Ted Osborne. Ted Osborne. And John Roberts and Tony Berend, who are quite well known as a, as an English duo singing together. Yeah, and John and Tony, of course, and lots of other people who you may or may not have had, actually had careers, but who have, were solid scholars of whatever they were, uh, um, you know, studying. The Highwood String Band lived there for a while. And who were those 10 brothers? The Henry brothers. Do you know about the Henry brothers? No, I never heard of them. brothers. Their ma raised them as a single mother. Every single one of them played guitar, fiddle, banjo, or mandolin, or all four of them. There is a tremendous amount, and always has been, in the Hudson Valley. Um, a lot of music, a lot of traditional music, fiddle tunes, unusual fiddle tunes. They come in from all over and all kinds of different people play them that are just ordinary citizens. When you're dealing with a pop music scene, it is hyper-competitive. When you're dealing with community organization and the socialization of ordinary human beings, one of the ways you want to bring them up is to dance to fiddle tunes. Make better humans out of them. Make them more cooperative, less cranky. <laughs> and it gives everybody a reason to get together and stay together. It brings community things to the fore rather than societal obligations to the fore. When you go to a dance, it's a community thing. When you get married, it's a society thing. There's a difference. You don't hear much Nobody fiddling these know. days. Nobody has to notify you no, nobody has to notify the authorities if there's going to be a dance. You know, you're allowed to, but you don't have to. In between all of these community events and the top of the charts, there are layers and layers and layers of entertainments that are done in various proportions in what I shall call traditional different up plethora of different traditional ways. Most of the people who do these kinds of things, however good they are, never succeed in making a living at them. And then when people have the avarice or the chutzpah or whatever you want to call it, to be at the top of this thing, this this imaginary thing we call the music industry um, they may go through phases you know they may go through the same phases I did and never got out of I've never been attracted to commercial music I've never been attracted to pop music and all of my people are the same way as me. We're stubborn. We don't put the microphone in the guitar. 
except for one. Harry Orloff puts the microphone in the guitar. But he used to be an acoustic musician. He was a bluegrass musician. I have the following people on my label right at the moment. Wendy, who learned to play jigs from Howie Barson at Ithaca, and who does a marvelous job singing the real old songs and knows a good song when she finds one. So she sings songs on her project by Stan Rogers and Archie Fisher and not Archie Fisher. There's one you got from Archie Fisher, I think. Well, I learned a lot from him at one point. Um, yeah. Archie Fisher is a famous British singer. Scottish. Scottish. <laughs> um, let him be Scottish. Yeah. I mean, he is British, of course, but let him be Scottish. Well, technically British, but, you know, effectively Scottish. And he and Archie was a scholar and, and Wendy's gotten, Wendy sung a lot of songs that she learned from him and people like him, his sister Ray. Did you ever learn anything off of Ray Fisher? There's one song of hers that I've really wanted to do for a long time, and I've never been able to work out a good accompaniment for it. And that's a song, it's a long ballad called Willie's Lady about uh, a guy who comes home with a bride his mother doesn't like. So she puts a curse on the bride that she can't give birth uh, and everybody is miserable until uh, I think the bride figures out how to how to how to find out how to break the curse and and so on. Um, it's it's a great ballad, but um, it's very hard to figure out what to play. You know, I I think it I think because it's a longer song, it should have uh, it would be good for it to have uh, an instrument accompaniment because then you can kind of vary the sound a bit more. And uh, I haven't been able to work out anything that I liked. Martin Carthy does a fantastic version of it, uh -huh. uh, but I can't play the way he plays, you know. Uh -huh. You know, I notice both of you have your instruments with you. Any chance we can get a duo well, going? Well, Andy should play something more. Yeah, um, get Wendy to, actually, why don't you play something, Wendy? Because um, people People zooming can't really play together because of the lag. No, and anyway, you and I can't play together because we don't play the same things. No. Well, um, I learned this. Andy, you might want to mute for this. Um, or somebody might want to mute Andy for this. Might want to what? Um... I learned this. I learned this for the CD. Actually, um, a, a friend, a friend of mine who had found found this studio and stuff, had said to me years ago that he thought this song would go well with banjo. And I was sort of going, eh. um, actually, the secret was to, was not to think of it as a claw hammer song. Uh, it's a song called uh, "The Last Trip Home," and um, the guy who wrote it is named Davy Steele. He was one of the lead musicians in the Battlefield Band uh, while they were going. And the song is about the passing out of use of Clydesdale horses. Actually, you can't see the banjo very well, can you? Um, 
I just want to show you it has a very pretty neck. Um, uh, and it's about the passing out of agricultural use of Clydesdale horses. And sometime after the song was written, uh, which is about 20 years ago, uh, the Clydesdales kind of came back into fashion as parade horses. And you can see them in, in every time some royal personage does something like sit on a chair and get a hat put on his head. Uh, you see them showing up. Have I worked on farms from the start? The muckle horses won my heart. With big broad backs they proudly stand, the uncrowned kings o'er all the land. summer's wind. So steady boys walk on, our work is nearly done. No more we'll till or plow the fields, the horse's day is gone. And this will be our last trip home. So steady Till I pull out the field, 
I've known you all these years, and that's the first time I've heard you play. Well, there's MP3s that on my website. Excellent. Thank you. Wendy yeah, is was. a very robust player, and she comes from a very robust lineage. <laughs> <laughs> what lineage is that? <laughs> Peter Hoover. What? You know Peter? Peter, Peter who? Peter the paleontologist? No. The six foot nine paleontologist. We used to go to Kentucky every other weekend. No banjo tunes. He was one no. of the original guys in the in the in the fifties. He was doing it in the fifties while he was no. studying. I never heard of him. Um, I was going to say my father was tone deaf, so I don't think I got. <laughs> I don't think anything came from him. Yeah. My mother used to play Chopin. I've never liked Chopin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chopin's okay, you know, in small bits, but really, I like picking. But I mean, this is this was the this was the thing that intrigued me, and this made me grill you about about the state of your finances before I agreed to do this thing. You know, yeah. um, who starts releasing CDs in twenty twenty three? I mean, you know, why not vinyl or, or eight track tapes? You know, vinyls are more expensive, and Beyonce bought like ten million units. For her latest, yeah, for her latest. So nobody's got any vinyl anyway. Yeah. Uh, and why do I want to contribute? You know, that I'm was kind of echo wallets. That was actually kind of a joke. <laughs> but it's it's more the it's more the the attitude at the moment seems. To, I mean, I th I do think it's changing in some places, and there are various reasons why it might change. Um, but there's there is a certain attitude of not wanting to have physical objects at all, and you know, oh, it's all on a streaming service, you know. Well, yes and no. It's all on a streaming service, but it the streaming services, while they have particulars, aren't themselves particular. No. In other words, they don't guide people to this kind of music as opposed to that kind of music. Discoverability is a but, problem. The, the reason I want to have CDs is because my people do gigs. And you can sell CDs at a gig. You may not be able to sell them online. Or you may be not be able to sell them in music stores. But if you are an active player, then you should be able to sell some CDs. I make them in small enough lots. This is why I'm a satellite label. I make them in lots of a thousand. It's relatively inexpensive, the actual pressing and the recording is, you, is manageable and the art is manageable and the licensing is manageable. So I don't have to sell that many CDs in order to make back what I put into it. And I'm hoping that my artists do most of the selling. So, um, I believe in the strength 
of my artists. So yeah. who else have you recorded? A fellow named Ken Tillery, who plays with, de with a deceptively soft touch. And a guy named Harry Orloff, who used to play banjo for Bottle Hill, when Lou London went and took up a, a permanent gig in a casino in, in Marvin Gardens. I always thought that Bottle Hill was just a great name for a band. Well, they're still going. Rex is still around, and uh, Walt's running Common Ground on the Hill, and and um, a couple of their other, and Harry's still around. You know, Harry lives in Westminster now, and um, Westminster, London, Westminster. What? Westminster in London, Maryland. Oh, Maryland. Maryland, not England. No, you know. Uh, uh, Bottle Hill's good uh, was a good name for a band. It was, it was a good band. Uh, old musicians never die. You know, we, I mean, sometimes we fall to dust in the middle of a program, but uh, there's no retiring from this. You know, you play as long as you can play. I'm 77. Um, Kurt Anderson, do you remember Kurt Anderson? Did you ever meet him? He was one of the Wildflowers guys. When I was in my 20s, I was involved in a musician's co-op started by Utah Phillips <laughs> called Wildflowers. We ran it out of Saratoga. And... Everybody that's still alive out of that is still playing music. You yeah, know. it's a pity Bruce Phillips isn't one of them. Well, um, Margaret MacArthur, John and Tony. Yeah. We're all members of Wildflowers. Did a few larger gigs with them. Alan Stoll, who just passed away, the fiddle player was a member and Kurt used to back up Alan. You remember Bob White? Did you ever meet Bob White? I never met him, but I knew the name. Yeah, he's he's lives in Rochester now. He was one. Rosalie Sorrell was among our number. Hal McCann. I remember, I remember seeing Rosalie Sorrell's at the Mariposa Folk Festival sometime in the late seventies. And she told the story of being introduced someplace as Rosalie Sorrell's Mormon ha housewife and singer of Mormon songs. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you know, <clears throat> I have been a wife. I was never married to a house. <laughs> I miss There's her. a great, you know, we, we've lost, we've lost, an, it's it's really tempting for Andy and me to get into sort of nostalgia because we've lost the, quite a few of our favorite folk singers over the last few years. Oh, yes. Um, they, um, just about one a week for the last 20 years. And the, well, you know more people, than, you know more people than I do. It hasn't been as I'm many. I'm teaching as, as fast as I can. I'm mentoring as fast as I can. I'm recording as fast as I can. 
there is not going to be a wave of traditional musicians like there was in the 60s. Yeah. No, although there is a wave of kids of traditional musicians. Um, you know, if you think about uh, the guy, Mitch Padalik, who founded the Winnipeg Folk Festival, his son plays in a band called the Ducks. Right. And um, Paul Mills, who recorded my first album in 1980, his Perfect. son plays plays and um martin carthy's daughter eliza plays you know there's definitely a whole second generation there is definitely a whole second generation i count my own daughter among them all right i did a kitty record with her i did not know that yeah and she plays a little guitar and you know she's trying to learn the fiddle but mainly she's a first amendment lawyer Which is not a bad thing to be at all. No, 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 no. Yeah, no. And it's more likely to produce solvency. <laughs> we're, we're, yes. In, in, in some time in the late 70s, Andy put out a directory of folk clubs in, in, in the U.S. And in the introduction, he wrote, armed with this book, you can work your way across the country and into debt. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um. Nevertheless, like any archaeological site, <laughs> is that how you think you of yourself? Find, you find traditional music in little shirtlets, and you have to put it back together. You find broken 78s. Fortunately, the technology gets better, and you can read the broken 78 with a laser beam instead of a steel pin. You know? When you said shirtlets, the image that sprang into my mind is the end of the movie Terminator 2, when the liquid metal man is in these little pools of mercury that start running together yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and right. reform into the, ro into the killer robot, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, I don't want to see pre-war music disappear, but it, its life on the ground is catch-as-catch-can, and its life in recording is to all intents and purposes everybody's private museum. You know, I have my 78s and my CDs and my cassettes and my 8-tracks and my cylinders and my LPs. Uh, and I have the means to be able to play them on my tapes. I have the means to, ma to be able to play them, but I'm not everybody. And that's a lot of culture. Mm. So I, I don't have any answers, but my answer is to record those people that I think are strong enough to record, you know, regardless of their age. One of my, one of my artists is a 20-year-old player of 100-year-old songs. This kid grew up with it, mm. Roman Barton Sherman. He's a genius. You know, uh, we have about five minutes left on the show, and I wonder if you want to 
play us out uh, with something that you really uh, you want, you want something hot? You want something hot? Whatever fits. Whatever that seems fits. like a good idea. You know, maybe you might want to do a little editing, you know, get this get it slicked up a little bit.
you play i realized that most women are never going to have hands large enough to do what you do on a standard <laughs> <U.S>. guitar <laughs> smaller guitar decks um mary flower doesn't have any problem getting around you know um there's i said most um, women what's her name uh del ray susie thompson Oh, well, Susie, Susie and I went to junior high school together. No kidding. Yeah. Maybe there's no Jane then. Yeah, a little bit. I, I never only met Jane later. Susie yeah. Thompson is sort of the queen of Berkeley folk music. And if you look her up at susieanderic.com, yeah. uh, she and her husband do all sorts of great things. Right. Um, but yeah, she has really small hands. And yet she manages, you know, you, you know her parents basically raised a, a string quartet. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, gentlemen, is that it, or should we continue? Well, that's, uh, it's an hour show, and uh, I think we're a little over, but you know, we're not that. Are you gonna, not that compulsive about the timing? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you can also, you know, you can also edit out the, the, you know, the extraneous parts. The parts that the dead air parts and the... you mean the parts where you seem to freeze while you were thinking <laughs> yeah we all do that on occasion but uh, yeah. that was excellent i really appreciate uh, especially wendy uh, giving well, us uh, some of your music as well well thank you do you guys do djing would it would it make sense for me to send you some of the cds that i've made well, I'd love to, you know, well, I actually have two radio stations, but they're, you know, rock and roll stations, but. The rock and roll. I'd this love is to hear rock and roll. This is, this is the kind of picking that I do, basically. Mm -hmm. One of the guys would fit. Harry Orloff would fit. He does mostly R&B, kind of leans toward New Orleans style. Oh, cool. You'd like, you you probably like him. Uh, the other guys are just pickers. Uh, and then there's Wendy. Who's Wendy? <laughs> my brother. My brother actually described me to somebody. He was talking about like, you know, our grandparents who were immigrants, and you know, and now their great their grandchildren are PhDs, and and one's this one's a lawyer, and that one's something else. And then he, he pointed at me and said, "And whatever Wendy is." <laughs> <laughs> there are some of us 
who got stuck at the juncture between theory and practice. And we do both. We do practice according to theory. You know, um, before he died, Dave, the guitarist Dave Van Ronk did a DVD on which he performs a bunch of songs, and then he does a bunch of tutorials on how he plays those songs. Yeah. It was a really, really great effort. <coughs> and I played some of it for a friend of mine who, who is, he's actually uh, a, a scientist, but you know, in, in his head, he, he, he would have loved to have played with like the Beach Boys or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so I, I played him part of the Dave Van Ronk thing. And he sat there going, oh, wow, this is really, really good. This is really good. And then I played then I played him a video clip of you doing Oh Glory. Uh -huh. And he sat there with his mouth open going, OK, I understood what Dave Van Ronk was doing. I have no idea what this guy is doing. <laughs> um. He could not figure out how you played what you played. Uh, it's easier than it looks. Tell him well, I, I, I was pumping him. a G. You're supposed to say it's harder than it looks. <laughs> so no, we are. It really isn't harder than it looks. It looks harder than it is. Oh, that's great. It's just, it's just, it's just not something you would usually do. It's Maybe just... there's hope for me to pick up a guitar. Well. How long have you been playing? I have never played. Never yeah, played. the court order says I can't perform publicly anyway, so <laughs> it's not doing any crimes. <laughs> good taste. So we're really at like past where we normally end the show, but I have one more song to request if you don't mind playing one more. Sure. I, I'm sure you know this when Death Don't Have No Mercy.
Beautiful, thank you. I like that a lot. I, I don't think I've ever heard it before. But. It's a great Reverend Gary Davis song. Yeah, it's one of the ones he wrote that Reverend Davis himself wrote. Well, thanks so much, and uh, we appreciate so you joining us. Come back sometime. You just holler at me, and I'll be happy to. You can stay in touch with Plutopia at plutopia.io. On Facebook, look for at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.